Take your Bibles, if you will, and please open them to page 1073. If you're using the Bible in the pew, it is John chapter 17. Lord willing, this week and next, we'll be looking at this uh, wonderful passage together, finishing out really the study in the first five verses. But John 17, again, page 1073. As we've already noted, this prayer in John 17 is truly our Lord's Prayer. What we often call the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 is really the teaching of Jesus in response to his disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray. He teaches them then how to pray, how to approach God. In that case, then, what we have here in John 17 can rightly be seen as Jesus following his own pattern for prayer as he prays to his heavenly Father. We saw that last week, actually, as we looked at the theme of glory in these first five verses, a theme that is obvious as we look at the text. You can see the word. It's some five times in the text. In the the hour has come, glorify your Son, that he may glorify you, in verse 1. And then in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And so now, verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It would not be an overstatement for us this morning as we read and understand this prayer to say that Jesus is absolutely consumed with the desire to glorify God, to glorify his Father. And that actually follows the very pattern of prayer that he taught his disciples. We noted again last week, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is a request, a prayer that God would be glorified in everything. Our catechism again teaches us what is man's chief end. It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so Jesus was consumed with a desire to glorify God. And we ought to be consumed as well by that same desire to glorify God in everything that we do. And so the Apostle Paul writes, And so whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink from the least of the things that you do, do it all to the glory of of God. Now, as far as anyone can tell, a phrase that became very popular in the mid-1980s and went on to become the theme and motto of Desiring God Ministries, led by its founder, John Piper, pastor and theologian. It was coined by Piper in his book, Desiring God, and it's been around for a long time. And it's a phrase that I know sticks with you once you hear it, and I'm sure you've heard it before. Piper said and wrote this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When Piper was asked in an interview Uh, where that came from, whether it was original for him and to him. He said that there were many sources, actually, of inspiration for that phrase. The Bible, of course, 
places like Psalm 37, where we're told to delight ourselves in the Lord. Philippians 1, where Paul expresses his own desire that God would be glorified even in his death. But it was probably a quote, Piper says, from Jonathan Edwards that most clearly captured the heart of what he went on to say and what became then the center and the motto of his entire ministry. This is what he said in that interview. He said, this is the most important quote from Edwards for me. And then he quotes, God glorifies himself towards the creatures in two ways. First, by appearing to their understanding, and second, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing in him, the manifestations which he makes of himself. God, Edward said, is glorified not only in his glory being seen, but in his glory being rejoiced in. Let me shorten that, Piper said. God is glorified in his glory when it is rejoiced in. And that's what I did, he said, was to make that rhyme. That's what I did. There it is. I didn't make it up. And so he goes on one more sentence in the interview and says this. When those that see it, that is his glory, and delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it which so easily becomes, the more they delight in the glory of God, the more God is glorified in them. There, he said, there you see it. We're just millimeters away from the slogan. And so it wasn't original with Piper, but he put it in the way that he did to make it so much more memorable. If we follow and understand what Piper and Edwards are saying here, and I hope we do, then it is true that there is no one who has ever lived or walked on this earth that was so focused exclusively on the glory of God that so delighted in seeing that glory displayed in all things than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if we look at these first five verses of his prayer between himself and his Father, where he prays for us as believers as a testimony that he ever lives to make intercession for us, we see that the single place where that glory and his delight in that glory will be displayed is in the work of his cross, just hours away from the time in which he is praying this prayer. A cross that the Father had given to him to do and to finish from before the foundation of the world. And what flows out of that work, that work of God's glory displayed in the cross, is what Jesus here calls eternal life, something only possible because of the obedience of Christ in going to the cross for the glory of his Father. And so would you stand as we read again these five verses with that introduction... John 17, verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, 
to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, our God, be hallowed among us now, be glorified, that we may see your glory through the Lord Jesus Christ as we remember his work, as we remember his passion for the glory of his Father and his God. Be gracious unto us, we pray. Guide and direct us in all things, and may your spirit accomplish his purpose in each one of our lives, we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If we were playing Bible Jeopardy this morning, which we're not, it might go something like this. It's, it's always Alex. I don't care. Alex is gone, but it's always Alex. Alex, I'll take the category important sayings of Jesus for $1,000. Answer, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And if you were the first to buzz in this morning, you would say, of course, in the form of a question, what is eternal life? Now, if you were the first one to buzz in, you can collect your $1,000 at the door. If you knew the answer, hopefully you did because we just read it. But you know, life isn't a game, is it? It's not a game of jeopardy. It's not a game to be played. This statement by Jesus made in John 17, verse 3, was made by him in a prayer to his father. That prayer, again, is a testimony that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for his people as our high priest. But the statement itself in John 17, 3, is one of the most important statements Jesus ever makes in the Gospels. And so it's fitting for us this week to turn to better understand what Jesus is saying in these verses. Next week, we'll return to the surrounding verses, which are also very important for us to understand. But this morning, our focus really is on that verse alone, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To do that, I want to do it under three headings, really, three things to look at and examine this verse by. The first is quantity versus quality. Quantity versus quality. What do I mean by that? This phrase that Jesus uses here in John 17, 3, eternal life, is actually a favorite phrase of the Apostle John in his writings. It occurs no less than some 24 times in both his gospel as well as his first epistle. It is a central theme and idea in what is probably the very most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And yet, I suspect that if you were to ask most people, including Christians this morning, what, what is eternal life? The answers would probably fall more on the side of quantity rather than seeing it more in terms of the quality of life. Answers would focus, as one writer says, more on duration, length of time. Eternal life obviously means a life that is eternal, that never ends, goes on and on. And and sadly, for most people, that is the limit of their understanding. They believe that as they pass from this life to the next, that that life simply is an eternal life, and there's no other substance to it in most people's minds. They will simply live forever and never die. My mother-in-law entered into her eternal state this past week, as so many saints have before her. But by the grace of God... She had already possessed eternal life for many years while living on this earth. There is to be something more to this phrase then than simply a life that never ends, only with respect to duration. Because if it's simply a matter of duration, then then it's really no different, and it lessens really the importance of this phrase Jesus is using, Because effectively, the Bible teaches us that all of us are created, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, with immortality in our hearts. God has put immortality in the hearts of man. Human beings will either spend eternity in life or in death, eternal everlasting life or everlasting death, as the Bible says. Now, that everlasting death is not a ceasing to exist, but it is one who exists forever, for all eternity, without end, an idea of duration, but under the penalty and the suffering of death, under God's judgment for their sins. And so it can't simply mean a matter of duration, that one is eternal life and one is eternal death. There has to be something more important here. And that really is what Jesus is teaching us. It's, it's not merely a life that never ends. That, that, of course, is true. We will never die. Jesus tells us that in so many places. And the one who does die will live again. So those are clear promises. But that's not the heart of what Jesus means here when he speaks about eternal life. The emphasis cannot be upon the word eternal as merely a statement of duration, but it must be upon the word life as defining a new state grounded and rooted in that which is markedly different than what existed before, which leads Paul to say things like this in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Eternal life has far more to do with the quality of life, the substance of life that begins here and now, the experience of our lives here on earth because of Jesus. It is as he taught us, life that is abundant, life that wells up from within, 
to overflowing, life that begins now and grows throughout all of eternity. And that is what I, exactly what I think Jesus is telling us in this text of what eternal life is. And so this first point is fairly obvious. It's, it's not merely a matter of quantity. It's more a matter of quality and substance of that life. Well, then what is it if it's not simply a life that never ends and that goes on and on? What is it? Well, let's look at the words of Jesus. This, he says, is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, that they know you, the only true God. Is that surprising to you as you consider Jesus's words? Perhaps you've understood this passage before. You've read it. You've memorized it. You've heard it. But does it nonetheless still surprise you that his focus is not on quantity, but rather on the, the heart of what eternal life really is? It's knowing God. It's understanding who he is. It was not uncommon to the prophets of the Old Testament as God progressively revealed his purpose and plan in Jesus Christ through their prophecies as he led them by the Spirit and as they spoke by the Spirit of the one who was to come of a new covenant cut in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, for instance, that classic passage on the new covenant of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah the prophet writes this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. It won't be external anymore. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now listen. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. If you follow the words of Jeremiah, you can see it even in the words of Jesus as he is so passionate in God's glory being displayed in the cross. Jeremiah is talking about that cross by which he is able to forgive the iniquity and sins of his people. But it's all rooted in this understanding that in that day there won't be any need for people like me to teach you about the Lord. You will know the Lord and your knowledge of the Lord will grow moment by moment for all eternity as you walk deeper and deeper in the waters of that knowledge of God. You may remember the passage from our study in Isaiah in chapter 9, not so long ago, as the prophet notes the characteristics of the consummated kingdom when Christ returns and he says at the end of that passage, which, which goes through some wonderful pictures of the peace that shall exist in that eternal everlasting kingdom, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea, so the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. We're back to Jeremiah again. Thus says the Lord, this is a great passage to consider, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, 
But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He delights in these attributes which mark him and set him apart as God. And he calls the people to boast in this simple truth that they know the Lord. Knowledge of God is central to all of the Bible. And Jesus makes this statement here because he is well aware of the teachings of the Old Testament with regard to the centrality of knowing God Those of you who are familiar with Calvin's Institutes know how that great work begins. It begins with a lengthy discussion of the knowledge of God. In fact, this great theme will be central to his entire work. Calvin first wrote the Institutes at the age of 26 years old. He continued to to write, to develop, to change, but the one thing he never changed, among others, The one thing he never changed in all of the versions of the Institutes that went all the way up to his death was the very first sentence that opens up the Institutes, which reads this way. Nearly all wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other, is not easy to discern. His point is, which takes precedence? Is it the knowledge of God, or is it the knowledge of ourselves? What Calvin will go on to say, if you're familiar with that great work, is that we must begin logically and most importantly with a knowledge of God. And only from that knowledge of the true God can we possibly ever truly know ourselves. Now that point is worth repeating. Only, only by the proper knowledge of the one true God can we ever possibly know ourselves. We live in a world that is obsessed with knowing ourselves people knowing who they really are, knowing their identity, their genuine selves, as they say. But when that is done, seeking to know oneself apart from the knowledge of the true God, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ, it leads to everything that we're seeing today. When a man exalts himself above God and removes God or refashions God in his own image, then views about identity, gender, self-expression will run wild with confusion and will abound everywhere. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the world in which we live today. Calvin, in his Institutes, goes on to say, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends, descends into an understanding of ourselves. 
I don't often quote C.S. Lewis. I don't find him to be a very helpful theologian at times, although I love his writings, so don't throw things at me. I do love his writings. He expresses with clarity some things that few others are able to do, but I, I find sometimes his theology to be troubling since my tendency is more towards theology. But I have to say, as I came across this example of his writing, that it really captures I think what Calvin was capturing there as well, it's from his work, Mere Christianity, which is worth reading, when he describes pride as the greatest sin which causes enmity between us and God. He says this, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. You see what he's saying. He's saying the exact thing that Calvin is saying, that in order to first truly know ourselves, which again is the obsession of our day. We have to properly know who God is. And this, Jesus says, to know who God is, consistent with the prophets of the Old Testament, consistent with God's revelation throughout, the, the, the proper way to do that is to know God first. And that is the essence and the heart of everlasting eternal life. It is the beginning of life, really, isn't it? The very beginning of our lives in Christ begins with a knowledge of who God is and from that, who we are before him, he being so vastly superior to who we are. And that proper order is what Calvin unpacks throughout his institutes and, in fact, what Jesus says so clearly in these verses. But notice he says, and I don't want to ignore this, that you know the only true God, the only true God. Now that's important because there are many false gods, many idols of our own making, many idols around the world that people worship and bow down to, many idols who are false gods of false religions. As you think about John and his writing, no doubt you'll come to his letter, his first letter, where we read this morning in our corporate response, the very last verses of his first letter, 1 John chapter 5. You may remember them, I'm sure, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now, if it ended there, we'd be fine, but you know what he does. He throws one last verse, verse 21, little children, keep yourselves 
from idols. Now, we've talked about this verse before. Why does he bring up idols? Because they are the exact opposite of the true and living God. And so his warning is, keep yourself focused and centered upon understanding and knowing the true God as he has revealed himself in his word and through his son. And be careful. Keep yourselves from idols. Why? Because they are glory thieves. They steal the glory of God from him who deserves all glory and praise and honor. He brings up idols because he wants them to be warned there is only one true and living God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, thirdly, as we consider the words of Jesus, notice what he adds at the very end. He doesn't just simply say that they know you, the only true God. It seems sufficient that he could have ended there. Because he is the only true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he adds these words, and that they would know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is God. He could have just said to know God would have covered it all. But he doesn't. Why? Because the knowledge of God is found, is experienced in only one way through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only know God truly, the only true God. We can only know him through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to know God, no other way at all, to know him in this way in which Jesus is writing, to know him and possess eternal life, except through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why the whole focus of this first five verses is on the work that the Father has given the Son to do and Jesus' declaration that he has accomplished it all. That accomplishment of that work in verse 4 is a testimony that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can come to know God and possess eternal life. You remember the words, no doubt, of Jesus earlier in John 14. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. You you see what he's saying You see how important these words are. Yes, they are exclusive. Make no apologies to those to whom you speak that Christianity is an exclusive religion in that it excludes those who refuse to enter through the narrow way. And the narrow way is Jesus. Their problem is not with us, at least it ought not to be. It is with Jesus, it is with God himself who has revealed that eternal life is found through a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God, who said, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who said, light light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, 
the only way we can ever possess and have everlasting life is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is eternal life, he says. Now, next week, we're going to build on this and look at some of the surrounding verses that are very important for us to understand with respect to how this happens. But Jesus is clear of what eternal life is. It is not merely a matter of duration. It is a matter of substance, of quality of life. And it is found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Two things to note as we close. One, we're not talking here of simple and mere knowledge about God. Commentators, as I've studied this week, have all made this point that we can have and possess a knowledge that is not eternal life. We can know things about God in many different ways. As you and I step outside today and enter into this beautiful day that the Lord has made, you will look above and below and around and you will see the wonder of his creation And those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Lord has brought to faith, you will give glory to God, and you ought to. But you know, people every day who are not believers see that creation, and they are learning, and they know things about God. Though Romans 1 tells us that they are constantly suppressing the truth of that revelation in nature and creation to their own hurt. God giving them over to a debased mind. We can have a knowledge about God that is not saving, that does not lead to eternal life. We we can look at life as God reveals his decrees in both creation and providence. We can look at life, God's work in the world, his sustaining of the world, his work in our lives that people say are coincidences. And, And you'll hear people say, the man upstairs must have been looking out for me, or all of these things. They can learn about God and have a knowledge about God, but never really know God. You can even have a knowledge of the Bible, God's written word, which he has given to us to reveal himself and the work of his son. I would say especially as Pastor Fisher and I both often talk to our covenant children, you can grow up in church from infancy in all of your life and hear the word of God and memorize it in the catechism. You can know a lot of things in your mind about God and yet not possess eternal life because you do not know him in this way through Jesus Christ. Now, all of these things are good and necessary, but they are not sufficient in and of themselves apart from the gracious work of God in our lives. We ought never to mistake a knowledge about God For the knowledge of God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Again, next week we'll look more into what this means fully. Well, if it's not a mere knowledge about God, what what is it then? What, What can we say with respect to what this knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent The men in their study, we're studying a book right now on a new reformation, and 
the one we studied before that was the great classic work, Knowing God. So I can say to you, if you have never read as a Christian, Knowing God, you need to go today, not today, tomorrow, order it, get it, read it. It is one of the most influential books in all of Christian history, really, written by James Inel Packer. If you never knew what his name was, J.I. Packer, James Inel Packer. The book is called Knowing God. The whole book is centered on this very theme of the knowledge of God. And this is how he begins the third chapter. Listen to these words. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life, as we've read already. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. The knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast, etc., as we've noted. What of all the states that God has ever sees in man gives God the most pleasure, the knowledge of himself. You see, Packer says, this is the most glorious and wonderful thing. It is, he goes on to say, a relationship with the living God. That is what Jesus is saying. It is not a mere knowledge, intellectual, but it is a relationship with the living God. James Boyce, now with the Lord and enjoying the fullness of the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ, writes this in his commentary. Very helpful. What is the knowledge of God then? It is a personal encounter with God in which, because of his holiness, we become aware of our sin and consequently of our deep personal need and then by his grace are turned to Christ, who is our Savior. This knowledge occurs only where God's Holy Spirit is at work beforehand to make it possible, and it always changes us, issuing in a heart response to God and true devotion to him. I think that's a wonderful definition, full and deep and thorough as to what this knowledge of God is. It is ever-growing, ever-deepening throughout our lives. From the moment he opens our eyes to see him as he is, to see ourselves as we are, and then growing, growing in depth and clarity throughout our lives. And I would add, throughout all eternity. One writer this week, as I was reading, I was reminded as... They were speaking about the wonder of this ever-deepening knowledge of God. He said his very favorite passage on the knowledge of God is found in Ezekiel 47. If you know anything about Ezekiel, it's full of prophecies and imagery, very much like Revelation. Not to be taken in the literal sense, but rather as a picture, much like the book of Revelation, of the glory that will be revealed in that kingdom that Christ will establish. And so in chapter 47, Ezekiel is, is through a vision experiencing the consummated kingdom. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 1 and through verse 5. 
He said, then he brought me, the angel brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out of the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. It's all a picture. It's an image. But this is where it becomes clear. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. He is right when he says that that is an image of the very heart of what Jesus is saying, of eternal life as water is seen running out from the throne of God in Psalm 46, for instance. It's a picture of the ever-deepening awareness of the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when God brought you to faith in himself, he planted you in that river which flows from his throne. And as you walk through this life, that water is deepening as you grow in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. And you walk through the water of suffering and of sorrow, of joys, of all of the things of this life. And your knowledge and awareness of God is deepening like the water deepens every thousand cubits along the way. And as that knowledge deepens more and more, so the river of the knowledge of God deepens within us. And we grow not only in this life, but in the life to come. It's all a picture of growing in this life, which God has begun in us in Jesus Christ. And so you turn to the very last book of your Bible, Revelation 22, the very last chapter And you have the same image that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel 47. The angel showed me, John writes, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of that city, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, each yielding fruit in its month, each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is what we're enjoying now, eternal life and what we will grow in our understanding through all of life. Life is not a game. It's not like Jeopardy, where we get all the answers up front and have to figure out what the questions are. In fact, it's just the opposite. If you read the Gospels and look at the ministry of Jesus, he actually does most of the asking of the questions in the Bible. Questions like he asked Martha outside the tomb of his friend and her brother Lazarus in John 11. 
Remember what he said to her? I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? Or questions like he asked Peter and the disciples in John 6 when the crowds finally began to leave him because many of his sayings were hard and they couldn't handle it. Remember the question he asked them? Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to leave? To which Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So I ask you this morning one simple question. And there is no greater question to be asked of you now or ever. Have you come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent? As Rick Phillips says in his commentary, that means have you received him in worship, devotion, and obedience? Has he become your God? And you live now in personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Have you? Have you come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent? If so, then please know it's right for us to come back to the theme of glory as we close. The end goal of eternal life, which God, which God says is knowing him, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. The end goal of that is the glory of God. You are now delighting in him more and more. You are becoming more and more satisfied in him. And because of that, he is becoming more and more glorified through you. And that is a joy worth knowing. Let us pray. Our Father, as we conclude these thoughts and prepare now to come to your table where we will behold eternal life in the suffering and death of our Savior, the means by which we can come to know you. We pray that your blessing would rest upon us and that you would apply your word to our hearts, each one of us individually here this morning, for we come alone before your throne before your throne of grace, we stand with no others around us. And we ask that you would so work in us that each of us might know this one who has been revealed to us, even Jesus. And that by your mercies, we might possess now and forever eternal and everlasting life. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.